Today on Script to Screen, Kenyatta, Mark, Derek, and I discuss Regina King's strong directorial debut, One Night in Miami. Based on true events in Kemp Power stage play, the movie depicts one February night in 1964 when four African-American icons and Malcolm X, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Muhammad Ali, then Crashes Clay, met to discuss their careers and perspectives on one another's cultural impact to this point. A clash of personalities ensues that provides engaging insight into the socio-political issues of their time that echo all the way to today. Remember, you can join the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com and RSVP to an online event for peer-reviewing scripts, giving feedback on fellow writers' work while networking with them as well. Enjoy our discussion on One Night in Miami. Uh, welcome to screenwriters, aspiring writers, film lovers, and everyone in between. The latest episode of Script to Screen, the Boston Screenwriters Group podcast, hosted by myself, Jeffrey Chang Stewart, Kenyatta Hoskins, Mark Liddell, and Derek Miller, where we gather and discuss and give screenwriter, filmmaker, and film lovers perspective on movies and various other forms of media related topics. Whenever you're giving us a listen, morning, noon, or night, we hope to be a great part of your listening cues. We know the world is a tad, shall we say, off kilter right now, but we hope to be a good part of your stuff in your day with these in-depth discussion on film, TV, streaming, and other things we love. So I'll start off with the intros. I've been a co-organizer of the Boston Screenwriters Group for over five years, helping out the founder, Deborah Sharif, with the meetups, where we help any level of experienced screenwriter peer review their screenplays with other members. I'm also a local filmmaker on the lower, uh, low, low, lower end of budgets, but I'm always up for coming up with movie ideas and always ready to film. And with all that settled, I passed off to my co-organizer and friend, Kenyatta. Hey, what's up? This is Kenyatta Hoskins. Been with the Boston Screenwriters Group for f- over five years. Been a co-organizer for about three years. And, um, you know, working on screenplays and um, uh, trying to, you know, work on uh, some projects, uh, short films and what have you. So I'm um, very happy to be here. And I'm Mark Lydell, longtime educator in the Boston area uh, and lover of all things film. Um, I used to be engaged in um, repertory theater in, in Michigan and also some film projects on the, the low end of the budget scale, um, really, for the most part, um, art school or film school uh, stuff. But uh, I'm really anxious and excited to talk about our topic. Hello, I'm Derek Miller. Um, been part of the Boston Screenwriters Group for a while. Um, filmmaker, writer, director, sometimes actor when you need it. All right, so we're recording this on uh, Super Bowl Sunday, so this will be out um, by the time the game is already over, but uh, we have a different kind of uh, a Super Bowl uh, meeting of uh, meeting of personalities, if you will, with our uh, movie. We're, uh, the latest from um, uh, Regina King, the uh, her actually her debut film, and uh, uh, I think we all we haven't had a uh, single film to talk about in a while as a topic, but uh, we, uh, there's a lot to get to with this one, I believe, and. Uh, does anyone want to start off with uh, maybe just uh, summarizing, giving us a short synopsis? Well, One Night in Miami was written by Kent Powers based on his screenplay that came out and I, I believe it was 2013. And it basically is um, a gathering of Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, uh, the day that he beat uh, Sonny Liston, and it's just a meeting of the minds, and and it's it, I mean it's part fictional, excuse me, part factual. Uh, you know, Kent Powers used you know some creative license, um, you know, kind of filling the gaps maybe, and um, how that meeting could have went. Um, so. Yeah, so all you know, this is around the time of the civil rights movement, nineteen sixty four. So it's that one night that they got together, the meeting of the minds, and this this is actually the directorial debut of Regina King. Now, the first 
my first introduction Regina King was in 227. It was a um, sitcom back in the um, mid 80s. So I've been a fan of Regina King ever since then. She voiced, uh, she did some voice acting in the Boondocks and she's had many different roles. Um, most recently, uh, Watchmen, which is the um, limited uh, series on HBO. And she played actually a black female um, superhero, so to speak. And um, she's won like, I think she won something for, um, well, actually she was nominated for Bill Street. And she's just a phenomenal act, actress, and I've been a fan for, for of hers for a very long time. I'll second that. You know, again, my first exposure to Miss um, King was 227, the sitcom as mentioned uh, by Kenyatta. And, you know, even though she's been, you know, in movies and television for, you know, decades, you know, it wasn't until recently that I really came to appreciate uh, her work. I mean, she's been in Boys in the Hood, she's been in a number of other movies, Enemy of the State with Will Smith, but I don't think she ever had a chance to, you know, spread her wings uh, until Beale Street, as far as being an actress. And then, of course, with this uh, directorial de debut, she blew me out of the water. I mean, this is her first, you know, foray into directing. And, you know, in my opinion, it's one of the best uh, uh, films of the year. And it's just amazing to see how she's progressed over the years. Yeah, definitely a very confident uh, uh, film debut. Um, and, and we should say the uh, uh, the personalities that uh, are actually on display. It's uh, Muhammad Ali on the, the first Sonny Liston fight in Miami on, uh, in February 1964. And they gather with uh, Sam Cooke, uh, very, uh, very well-known um, uh, singer, uh, singer-songwriter at the time, and uh, Jim Brown, a, a NFL legend. Uh, where, uh, as uh, as we go on, find, we find out that it's actually towards the end of his career uh, when he uh, uh, chose to retire. And finally, uh, Malcolm X, uh, the sort of the sort of the ringleader of the all, and uh, bringing all these uh, personalities in together to a room. And um, he has a very different idea of how the night's uh, supposed to go down uh, um, than what, than what uh, actually ends up happening. But yes, uh, Regina King has impressed, uh, I think maybe the first time I, I uh, saw her work was probably an enemy of the state with uh, Will Smith. Uh, and, uh, because, uh, uh, it, because Beale Street, I believe, was like her first uh, um, one of her first starring roles, uh, uh, she took, there was a long gap between uh, her starring roles and feature films uh, from uh, before Beale Street. And uh, well, luckily she was, uh, uh, she was awarded and re recognized for her outstanding work in that movie. Uh, and, um, and luckily that uh, she's going into, branching out into other forms of, uh, of trying to get her voice out there. Yeah, the first movie I recognized um, Regina King in was um, Poetic Justice. But like um, later on, I remember going to, I grew up to remember that she was also in 227. But like the movie that stood out for me in the beginning when I first started watching her was um, Friday, just because it was like also one of my favorite movies. Um, but yeah, she did really well in um, Enemy of the State. And um, another thing that I, people don't really mention that often is her um, supporting role in um, Miss Congeniality too, which I thought was pretty funny as well. I mean, she was in so many films. If you look at her, uh, look at her filmography, it's just amazing. And she's done, I mean, she she's done such a great job in every role she's been in. Uh, she was in Shameless. <laughs> she was the probation officer. Uh, she was in seven seconds. Um, just that the job she did in that film was very phenomenal. And uh, like like I said, she, this is a directorial debut, and she just did 
such a great job. Um, just because because <clears throat> I read somewhere where there are some really well known actors, you know, uh, that wanted to be in this film, but she uh, she wanted people to audition. And I guess, you know, if you're a well-known actor and um, you've had some films under your belt, you get to a point where you don't audition anymore, but she wasn't having it. So that's how come you have uh, these actors who aren't really as known as the ones that want to actually be in it because um, they wouldn't audition. So she held her, you know, she, she stuck to her guns on that. Just a little bit. Yeah, I heard, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard yeah. the same thing. I, I was wondering, you know, <laughs> with those actors, there's these well-known names who I guess we'll never know, at least not anytime soon. With these well-known actors, would they have had the same position? Would they have chosen not to audition if this had been like a Martin Scorsese film or something like that, you know? This is her first time uh, directing, and I don't know if you know she garnered the kind of respect that she you know deserved because she wasn't you know a big name. It was Quentin Tarantino, somebody who's you know got a reputation. Would these actors um, who are big names choose not to audition for them? Because I've heard of big time actors you know still auditioning for roles they covet, and it's usually for somebody who's a well known director, somebody who's got a, a you know decades-long uh, filmography in terms of directing. And I don't know if it's just an ego thing or not, but I'm happy that it turned out the way it did because she got some great performances uh, from the four actors uh, in this movie. I mean, we talked about before when we talked about in our other podcast where we talked about performances, our favorite performances of 2020. I know we're talking about this film in 2021. Uh, most people start this year now in terms of um, when it actually uh, came out was 2020 and not as many people saw it. But um, one things we said was it's hard to, we kind of clump them all together, you know, because they all did such a great job. Um, the one, the, the you know, the, the one I know the most is the one who played Jim Brown, and he was in quite a few films. He was in that TV show uh, Underground. Uh, he, he was in other stuff too. That um, so he was like the most popular one out of all of them. I'm not too familiar with the uh, the other actors. Uh, he also played in Stranger Compton. Uh, he played MC Ren, um, and just other films so so he's probably as to say the veteran out of all of them and i think um kingsley he was in was he the one that was in uh hamilton or one of them was from him him was in the uh play hamilton right my uh, leslie leslie odom who was uh sam cook was, uh, was oh, in okay. And he he's actually the one that was singing because there were scenes where Sam Cooke was singing. Was that actually his voice? He was actually the one singing, right? Yeah, I would assume that it was his voice. Man, that, man, his, his voice is amazing, man. So um, I've never seen Hamilton, but uh, like I said, Eldis, Eldis Hodge is um, the one that I know. But all, all four of them did such... I mean, not only... Did they have the voice of the uh, the, the real life people they were playing? But uh, there was depth to the performances as well. So uh, kudos to those all four of those gentlemen, and I'm looking forward to seeing them in other future projects. Right, you know, Aldous Hodge was also in a film uh, a year or two ago. And time gets blurry with this whole COVID pandemic thing, but um, a movie that featured. Um, Alfred Woodard called Clemency. He played a, a death row inmate in that one, did a, a phenomenal job in that movie. He's been around here for like 20 years acting in a variety of projects, TV and uh, the big screen. And it's good to see that he's finally getting his due. Um, but for me, the most fa- fantastic thing about this, because it does come from that wonderful um, stage play turned into a screenplay, is that 
for a directorial debut, she's able to take this uh, former stage play and it was adapted into a screenplay and for her to, you know, make it feel as if it was not a stage play. We, we saw something um, a few months ago with, or two months ago, I guess now with um, Maureen's Black Bottom, where it was obvious that that was, you know, a stage play. Wonderful uh, piece of work there as well, but I think it was pretty obvious that that was a stage play. With this, you know, I had to ask myself, because I didn't know, was this a stage play or not? Um, of course, the conversations happen in a hotel room, but there are a number of other scenes that happen outdoors from the introduction to all the characters being outside, really. Um, and a number of events that happen even after, I guess, they've been in the uh, actual hotel room and having the conversation. So did a great job of converting this or transferring the, the feeling of the, 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 the uh, stage play into a screenplay, which can obviously be a challenge uh, for most uh, directors, but this is done just effortlessly, it seems. Yeah, I agree with Mark on that, especially because like, I kind of, when I was watching, like I didn't know it was a stage based on a stage play either, but like, as I was watching it too, I was like, okay, this kind of seems like this is a stage play. However, it's just the way I would say, I guess the pauses would go just because like in a stage play, it just like the dialogue just continues on and on and on and on. But like with the, I guess the pauses of the flow of dialogue just made it seem unlikely that this was a stage play. And then as like, as, like, as he was saying, like there was more than one setting, like they went to the roof, they went to the corner store. Um, and even in the beginning, when you had um, intros of the characters that come in, you were just like wondering, oh wow, she did like a really amazing job taking this from a stage play into a screenplay for people to see. Yeah, um, <clears throat> correct. I mean, it's a lot more open than, um, you know, uh, Black Bottom. And the, but, the, you know, the completely different uh, films and both of them based on uh, plays, you know, with Ma Rainey being uh, written by the late, great August Wilson. And, um, you know, maybe rest in peace. But you know, there's a lot of similarities as well. And that has been, that's been kind of like ever since the pandemic, uh, that's kind of been uh, the trend of um, converting plays into um, film, film adaptions. You know, even, even Fences was not as open as this film. So yeah, so this, this one was very open and um, it, it could be challenging to adapt a play to a film because you know it's you know when you're in one setting it's, it's, it's kind of challenging you know and we there's a film right now uh called uh, Malcolm and Marie basically in one setting so it's kind of tricky you know something that's dialogue driven to keep people's attention and um one of the things you rely on is performances and also cinematography too. And um, like I said, Malcolm Marie, the cinematography on that on that particular film was fantastic. Uh, Ma Rainey, same thing. And this one, um, <clears throat> one night in Miami, you cannot under, not, so the performances are very good. Well, well off the charts and the cinematography cannot be underestimated. You know, one thing that really struck me early on in this film was sometimes, you know, there's certain things that happen in movies that let you know you're in for something, in something different than, than what's usual. And for me, um, the thing that happened in this movie was Jim Brown, the person who, you know, my entire lifetime, of course, he was a legend before I was born, but you've always heard of Jim Brown being a man's man, a tough guy didn't take mess from anybody. And when we are introduced to Jim Brown, he's gonna put in his place, if you will, right? From the very beginning, it's like, wow, this is Jim Brown. I've never heard of Jim Brown being put in his place. He'd always have a a quick, you know, retort. He'd always have something to 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 say or to do that would kind of push back, including, you know, of course his you know retirement after um, the owner of the Brown said that his job was football. He said, Okay, I've got something for you. I'm gonna quit. 
but but in the first introduction to Jim Brown in this movie, um, he is <laughs> welcomed by someone that he knew, and then at the same time dismissed uh, rather abruptly, and then let me know I was in for something different. I wouldn't be seeing this, these characters, these individuals, uh, in the same light that I'd seen them or come to know them um, throughout history. So that was really interesting just to see the very first treatment of Jim Brown. Yeah, the, the movie starts out with uh, sort of all four of these, uh, all four of these like great personalities and uh, you know icons uh, being humbled and insulted. <laughs> um, Muhammad Ali loses the Henry Cooper fight in uh, at London. Uh, Jim Brown is insulted by I think a like a uh, uh, someone he knew from his childhood growing up in Georgia. Uh, Sam Cooke is uh, bombs on stage because he's not singing the the right kind of music for the Copacabana, and. Um, uh, Malcolm X is dealing with the fallout from his uh, a schism with the Muslim Brotherhood. So the movie starts off with like uh, with all these uh, all these four great with all these four men at sort of the the, the bottom of their uh, well not really uh, maybe not the bottom of their career but in uh, very uh, you know humble beginnings and uh, it's interesting the arcs that all of them take from there. Yeah, they're, they're all at crossroads, right? They're all trying to figure out um, what their next step will be. Um, and it just so happens that it all kind of converges in this one place, this one time, where they're all have, having um, these kind of challenges around, you know, what's next, what steps are next, um, you know, what does it mean to be, you know, who I am as this person who's well-known, a famous figure, and have to make a move or an adjustment, um, you know, will my... Um, celebrity, will my followers, will my uh, acclaim go with me when I make these moves, these adjustments, whether it's um, Cassius Clay changing his name and his religion, um, you know, and, and you know, Malcolm X, you know, his, as you mentioned, schism with the Muslim Brotherhood or Nation of Islam, you know, and then Jim Brown, you know, leaving, uh, potentially leaving the NFL at some point, um, kind of thinking about it, and then Sam Cooke, you know, being challenged, of course, by Malcolm X to write music that is um, socially challenging or at least um, socially relevant. And he even compares um, <laughs> Sam Cooke and his work to um, that of Bob Dylan, saying that Bob Dylan basically is, is um, more in tune and more in touch with the people, those who are struggling, than you, Sam Cooke. So this is his challenge. This is not much a challenge to Sam Cooke in that regard. So they're all kind of figuring out where they're going to go from here. And there's always, you know, the, the, the risk that wherever you go next, you know, your followers won't come with you. I mean, they all had a model success before that, except for Cassius Clay was just beginning his uh, transcendence. And um, that <clears throat> scene with Jim Brown offering to help move furniture and, and, and saying he doesn't allow in the house. Now, with that Monaco success, it did not change the situation in terms of uh, Black relations in, in the country. So it's almost like they had to, um, they felt like they had to meet. Well, Malcolm X kind of um, uh, brokered this this meeting to, um, to say, hey, we, you know, this proves that no matter how successful you are, individually you you can get knocked down however notches are you know we have to come together to make change so so yeah it's like uh that's really suggesting you know to, to the modern era to young folk now and the people who might have forgotten this that the bag won't save you right having money won't save you having popularity won't save you from the conditions that, are, that come with being who you are in the society. The bag certainly didn't save uh, those who suffered in Nazi Germany. The bag didn't save those who were in, put in internment camps in this country. Having wealth, having prosperity, or even connections to those who do have that, you know, won't save you. And that's, you know, what's really established here is that, you know, it, it takes more than just having money or, you know, uh, notoriety. Uh, to to move yourself and your people, you know, to the next level. 
and, and also shows I've seen also shows that um that um you know racism is not just you know a bunch of people wearing hoods over their heads and screaming the n-word at you or burning crosses on your lawn you see how nice that man was to uh Jim Brown you know what I mean so 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 uh and that harkens back to um What's her name? Uh, Paula Dean. She's a sweet old lady, but <laughs> I mean, you saw, you know, um, the racism in her. So, so, so racism is more than just, you know, kind of just levels to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a system. It's a um, it's a way of living, and you know, it's not just this uh, cartoonish, you know neo-Nazi in your face. That's one part of it, but there's that other one, sweetest pie, you know, uh, person that can say, hey, it could be the loan officer, you go to a bank. I was like, ah, you know, you can have a portfolio, portfolio like anybody else, but they're in a power position to make that decision that dictates. It's all about autonomy. I mean, at the end of the day, you get what I'm saying? So, um, so, so that 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 scene, that particular scene, showed that there's levels to to racism in this country. So, right. so it's like, yeah, well, like, while you fight against the the most overt, obvious, like like I say, KKK, and you can even say nowadays even Trump, that's the more quiet ones, in the backdrop that, you know, um, you think they're your friends. Or have you, but when it comes down to it, they're no better than you know the other folks. Yeah, there's one part to that that Jim Brown introduction scene where the, the Mr. Carlton character played by Bo Bridges, there there's there's a statement that he makes in his conversation uh with Jim Brown that lets me know, uh oh, there's something wrong here. And that is he's saying, you know, <laughs> to, to Jim Brown. You know, our families have been friendly and took care of each other since the very first people inhabited this island. So there's, there's a whole lot to unpack with that one sentence, which is, you know, first people inhabiting the island probably weren't um, the Mr. Carlton character's family or the Jim Brown character's family. Two, they didn't take care of each other, I'm sure. If it dates back then, I'm sure Jim Brown's family was taking care of Mr. Carlton's family or something like that. Right, given that 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 um, island was St. Simon's Island, one of the Georgia Gullah uh, Sea Islands, um, there's a long well. I can go into a long diatribe about that, but there's a very famous place on that island called uh, Ebo's Landing, where some enslaved Africans um, from the actual Ebo tribe jumped off of a boat and drowned themselves, chained together on St. Simon's Island. But there's a long history on that island of it being a place with um, um, a center of exchange of, of African-American bodies. Um, and when you talk about the very first inhabitants and taking care of each other, I just, I just think about the, the, the Ebo landing uh, situation. And I'll know, even Jim Brown, I'm sure in this situation knows that we didn't take care of each other. He, he's not clueless as to you know, the, the relationship, but Mr. Carlton seemingly is clueless or is in some way uh, slighting Jim Brown by saying that. Yeah, that uh, the scene begins, you know, uh, as as you were both saying that you know, uh, Bo Bridges as uh, the Carlton, uh, Mr. Carlton is just very nice, a very you know, very affable to, uh, to to Jim Brown at the beginning. Uh, talks about his accomplishment in the NFL, the rushing record uh, at the time, but uh, you know, as yeah, as the, con the conversation starts turning a little bit more, uh, a, a, a little bit more towards the. Um, uh, Towards the real attitude that uh, that that, uh, that Mr. Carlton has, and of, of course it ends with uh, him saying the racial slur to right right to Jim Brown's face, which uh, <laughs> you know, pub uh, that probably was shocking to like uh, you know anyone who knows uh, uh, Jim Brown now uh, that he probably would uh, not have taken that very lightly uh, uh, at any other time in his career. Uh, but uh, 
uh, it sets up like the sort of the the two faces of uh, white establishment. You know, it's very you know we're very welcoming. You know, as long as you you know as long you know to to black entertainment and black uh, you know icons and everything and whatnot. As long as you're you know as long as you're uh, doing uh, rushing on the field. As long as you're singing. As long as you're not being too militant in your in your views. Uh, but as but we're still not going to respect you. You're still not on our level. And uh, it sort of and that's sort of the the trend that goes all the way through uh, these clash of personalities and these clash of viewpoints and that's really the the heart of the script is the uh, especially the clash between uh, sort of Malcolm X and uh, Sam Cooke, uh, two ways that they uh, view you know, the struggle and uh, and how their work is perceived. Yeah, I felt like that movie itself, just with the dialogue being um, exchanged between all the characters, just felt like it was a, a metaphor, I guess, is, is what I would use for today. Like, it's the same situation, same stuff going on. And we're still trying to tell people you got people who are in a position of power to use your voices, let it be known that this is what's going on, that this is what's happening. But then you hear other people who are opposing them saying, hey, just keep playing football. Hey, just keep playing basketball. Hey, just keep doing your job. Just keep on dribbling, you know. It just it just echoes, uh, you know. Just it's just a continuous argument that, uh, uh, you know, throughout the throughout the decades. Yeah, sharp and dribble, you know, because what's been slipping out of people's mouths over the past couple of years is like, hey, you're 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 pretty much a million dollar slave. That's actually a book called Million Dollar Slave. It's like you're making all these millions of dollars. So why are you complaining? You, you've made it. Um, so that is held up as uh, racial progress. You pick, you know, because how many times have you heard, like uh, you have youth uh, with dreams, hoop dreams, they call it, right? To make it to the NBA. Uh, but people always try to tell them to always have a backup plan because uh, if you think about how many people actually make the NBA, you know, compared to people who don't, it's astronomically, uh, there's a astronomical uh, gap. I mean, there's like, what, 30 teams, uh, 12 on a roster, you know, and um, only but so many people make it. So so what, what people are doing are taking like 1% and holding that up and saying, see, you know, um, there's racial progress. You know, you have um, even in other fields and industries, like um, I know recently I saw an argument somebody had about Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, you know, he's one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, right? So it's like, oh, see, there is racial progress because The Rock is the highest paid, one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, you know, but that's kind of like a, uh, that's deceiving, you know, it's deceiving in the sense that, okay, you hold up like this very minuscule uh, section of uh, a certain particular uh, segment of society, you know, and, and making it look like an absolute, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, it, it could be deceiving because you have all this racial strife that you see in the streets of, um, I'm trying to think of the name, uh, the last one, um, George Floyd and what have you. I mean, there's a whole, you know, if you ran down uh, all the, all, all the, um, just, just, just black folks getting killed by the uh, rogue police. I mean, the list could go on and on. And um, then you have gentrification, then you have all this other stuff. So it's very easy to pick one, two, three, four people and kind of hold it up as, you know, kind of like, um, you know, deceiving, you know, okay, if they can do it, you can do it. But there's only but so many slots in there. But, you know, what about, you know, prison industrial complex where you have 50% of the prison population, you know, being uh, African-American male, even though, you know, the whole race uh, in this country is like, makes up only 13%. And that's the 
man, you know, men, women, children, you know, elders and infants. So it's kind of like you have this very small, but they make up, and there's a reason for that, you know, and um, you know, so um, so so I guess when I'm thinking about this film, and I think that's kind of like the idea that Malcolm is saying that that um, entertainers and celebrities they can't you know they can't be they can't be as deceived okay you might have individual success but how about collectively um uplift your people using your you know where you're at in life and that's what i guess his message to say malcolm x's uh you know uh what he was trying to uh that's the message he was trying to um tell uh, Sam Cooke. And I think that's where a little bit of fiction comes on in here, because I think Sam Cooke, and, and I think he mostly did it for the story arc, I mean, the character Oxen story, but Sam Cooke has already been writing kind of like these, I guess he was, Sam Cooke was being accused of writing these um, fluffy songs, you know, songs that didn't really mean anything. It kind of reminds me of like rap music. Well, rap music, you have the gangster rap. You have, um, but right, bef like right before, right, excuse me, right before that, you had Public Enemy, you had uh, Karis One, you had all these rap uh, groups that were probably revolutionary, but they say, oh, that didn't sell. So then you come out with all this um, gangster rap now all that sells, and then they pump that up. You know what I mean? So it's like Sam Cooke was writing songs that really didn't mean anything, you know, compared to um, the change is going to come. So I think he was writing that um, before, um, you know, before, like, I, I think the writer played with the timeline a little bit, kind of like Louis X, is, you know, Louis Farrakhan, um, Louis Farrakhan didn't have like that control over the nation until like the 70s. So, so the timeline kind of, you know, got skewed a little bit. He played with a little bit. Um, I think mostly, you know, to kind of um, come up with this, you know, like the character arts, kind of like what we were saying, saying before. So, so you know, which is which is, I mean, you know, it's 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 fine. I mean, from a screenwriting uh, perspective, that's what you needed to like, um, kind of like you have that peaks, the peaks and valleys, play with the time, the timeline a little bit. So, yeah, one thing about Sam Cooke. Um, in this particular film, they talk about uh, his ownership of his content, right? The, the masters, or at least ownership, publishing rights, etc. Um, which also was a little bit of a manipulation. He tried to he tried to do that, and at times he, you know, was pioneering this, but he got a lot of pushback from uh, <laughs> the powers that be. Uh, in other words, the the underworld element uh, that tends to, well, tended and still does tend to run a lot of uh, um, media. Um, some speculate that his death, uh, which would happen within the year of this actual meeting, um, was a result of him trying to take the reins of his career and own his property that he's created. So um, maybe in the film they should have talked about him wanting to or, or, or trying to own all of his content, but at that point, um, it was kind of up in the air as to whether he owned it or not. And, and, and uh, some would say that uh, his attempt to own his own content, his masters and his publishing is what got him killed. And that's a lot of discussion too, because they try to say the same thing with Prince and uh, Michael Jackson. And then you had James Brown. And uh, a lot of times, you, you know, soon afterwards, they end up dead because like there's a documentary in netflix uh you know regarding sam cook i think it's called the death of sam cook i'm not maybe you guys can um the i don't know if you've seen it. sam cook 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Very mysterious circumstances, and um, yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, there's some similarities of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Both uh, films adapted from plays were based on real life people, and and in both instances, you have the same thing. Uh, it's about autonomy. Like I said, I think that's the overarching theme of this is autonomy because uh, Ma Rainey did the same thing. She was like uh, was a very strong uh, person, and Sam Cooke as well, in terms of um, ownership. You know what I mean? It's one thing to make a lot of money entertaining people, but how about, um, you know, it's about empowerment. And, and and being autonomous about you know you you, you create this 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 um, this art but but controlling it in terms of you know um make when people make money you have like this lion's share of it instead of like i, I don't know if you've seen the movie Cadillac records where there was a time where you have these artists you know they'll they'll pay them in the Cadillac, they give them a Cadillac. It's like, instead of like saying, okay, you get a share of the profits, you know, they give them a Cadillac and then they end up taking all that money. Then you have artists that come out like Sam Cooke. I was like, no, they wasn't hearing that anymore. You know, so, so I think that was um, a very important part of the, the story is about, like I said, empowerment and autonomy. Yeah, sadly, we still have some of that, you know, going on now in terms of artists being cheated of what they're due. I, I just think about over the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a shift um, to what's called 360 contracts um, for musicians. Whereas before those contracts came out, artists could make a certain percentage off their music. Often it was only about 15% of the royalties for even popular artists like a Prince or a Michael Jackson. And the smaller artists, of course, will get a smaller percentage of that, sometimes 10% uh, of their their actual publishing. But when 360 deals came about, the record companies would take not just um, 85% or more of your music, but 85% of everything else that you do, the mer merchandising of your, your um, material, your t-shirts at concerts or if you branch off into making movies they're taking percentages of that too so it's not just the music piece they're saying we gave you the platform we put you on we're going to take a little bit of everything you do uh endorsements commercials etc we're going to take it all and i think we went into kind of doing a little bit to, but maybe we should mention like uh, the sort of the dynamics that uh that come into play in terms of these um uh, uh, in terms of these four personalities uh, yeah, so uh, Malcolm arranges this meeting uh, under the guise of talking about uh, uh, talking about civil rights and talking about uh, how each of them can use their talents to you know further the cause. And um, so Malcolm is really the uh, spearheading, just wanting to be wanting uh, Sam Cooke to uh, be more vocal about uh, civil rights and. Uh, um, what's going on, uh, not just in the South, but all, all across the all, all across the country, in his music, uh, just like uh, what Dylan was doing with "Blowing in the Wind," and uh, he wants um, <clears throat> uh, sort of Jim Brown to realize that even though you know he's uh, you know already a, an NFL legend, uh, one of the best running backs of all time, uh, he's still not respected. Uh, he's still you know just another. Uh, uh, He's still just another black athlete, just uh, asked to run the ball, and uh, and Muhammad Ali is on top of the world. Uh, this is his first, the first time he won the heavyweight title, and uh, of course, as a, as a 22 year old, uh, no less. And so he's trying he's trying to convert. Uh, number one, he's trying to convert uh, uh, Crash's Clay at that time to uh, uh, to to Islam, and not just Islam, but uh, you know he's because of the schism with uh, the Nation of Islam, uh, Malcolm wants uh, 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 Crash's Clay to join him, join his uh, sort of congregation as sort of be become the, the main two members of that movement. And you see sort of the, uh, the manuscript uh, he wrote with Alex Haley, uh, and that's, that's the writer that he was talking about in New York, uh, yeah, that, that would get published uh, posthumously. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, 
it's an interesting just sort of snapshot of this time and place when uh, all four of these, all four of these men were sort of uh, rather, uh, yeah, at the, as we said before, at the crossroads of their careers and their lives. Yeah, when I first saw it, um, I was kind of bothered by, okay, you had Malcolm X and his, um, the way he thought, and um, and you had the other ones, okay? Not so much Muhammad Ali, because he was, you know, he was more on Malcolm X's uh, side. And then you had, uh, what do you call it? You had uh, Sam Cooke and Jim Brown. It's kind of like, almost, it was, almost felt like, and, and, and let me tell you something, um, Malcolm X, he was, throughout the whole film, he was just cool and calm, collected the whole time. And um, his view was considered really, very militant. And it's kind of like, uh, reminds me of like nowadays, you have um, anybody has so-called, quote unquote, militant views. They, they, there's like a disparaging word that people use. They call, they call it hotep. You know, um, I know, I, which is which is a, actually a, a positive word. In the, they, they turn into a negative. Um, so it's kind of like a gaslighting, so to speak, that happens when you speak up against the, the status quo. And 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 so instead of militant, they call you hotel nowadays. So it's kind of like even though. Um, there's like a 60 year gap between uh, the, when this film took place and now, pretty much the concept is the same, where if you speak up against the status quo, you get vilified by your own community. And, and what pissed me off about the film originally, how um, they were disparaging uh, Malcolm X uh, when, when I mean, ultimately, you know, um, you, you know, you saw you saw the evolution, of, you know, in, in story wise, where you know ultimately it ended with a change is going to come. So it's, it seemed like that um, it went more towards what Malcolm X was truly saying, because sometimes when you label somebody, you're you're being quite dismissive. So you're not really, uh, you're not really. It's kind of like when you do that, you become dismissive. You're not, you're not hearing what the person's really saying, so to speak. You know, so so like you know, Malcolm X. This was around a time when um, JFK, he was assassinated, and he made that comment about chickens coming home to roost, and that's what how he fell out with the nation on top of the allegations of. Um, um, excuse me, Elijah Muhammad, and he's um, fathering uh, all these children by underage, you know, uh, girls. I think they're like 16 or something like that. And it was, it was, a, it was a bunch of them. So, you know, um, sometimes I guess you got to watch what you say because sometimes one statement can kind of like be in the pinnacle of you know, you, so to speak, you know, um, sometimes you can misspeak or whatever, whatever, because nowadays, you know, um, this is 2021, but, you know, with the past couple of years, you know, you have like uh, celebrities, uh, sportscasters, they'll say that, you know, the N word, like, I don't know if people remember Nakers and all that kind of stuff. They apologize. And then there's all kinds of excuses. Oh, they didn't mean they're not, they're not really racist. But if you're one of those people who are very outspoken, okay, and you have a viewpoint that um, people really don't like, you, you misspoke. If you misspeak or if you say something, it's kind of like people are waiting for you to say something um, that you could hop on. And I think that's what they did with Malcolm. And now you're just like a pariah now, you know? So anything you say thereafter, it's like, 
you know, don't listen to this person. And um, so, so when I first saw it, I think they were kind of treating him like that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you're too militant. We don't have to listen to you. You're, you know, I don't know if if you guys, you know, felt like that when you saw this film, how how it all started out. Oh, so almost like he was ganging up on. I certainly felt that way in terms of um, Sam Cooke and his relationship to Malcolm X and early on um, Jim Brown when they, they go into the hotel room for the first time. I think Jim Brown's looking for where the women is. Right? He, wants, he wants to find women to bed for the night. Um, and then they're also, of course, uh, emphasizing uh, the consumption of alcohol initially too. So all three of those things... Uh, um, well, at least the, the, the womanizing, uh, the consumption of alcohol, and just the, the lack of kind of discipline they all kind of have in that moment, just wanting to be hedonistic, um, kind of flies in the face of what Malcolm was all about, that he's trying to kind of uh, center them and bring them you know, to a position where they can have a conversation about what he wanted to do, and to bring them together uh, and have them kind of refocus, rededicate themselves to uh, the people as opposed to their own individual whims. So there was a little bit of pushback there from the other characters, um, a little bit less so with Muhammad Ali, but even he, in his first kind of uh, utterances in the hotel room, is kind of focused on his own vanity, right? Talking about how he doesn't have a scratch on his face and how pretty he is, which is something that you might hear him say, famous for saying he's pretty, and he's a handsome guy and he can't be touched, but, you know, kind of hinging the first few minutes in the hotel room on these various vices lets you know that, okay, these guys are focused on one thing and Malcolm X is over here doing his own. He's trying to, he has to bring them into his uh, own philosophy, as it were. I mean, story-wise, story it, it worked. I'm sorry, Jeff. It just, it, it worked in the sense that, you know, you have to, you know, start from, you have to start down and you have to build up. So, yeah kind of like that contrast between you have this ultra, you know, he was, like I said, he was cool throughout the whole film. And then you have like, uh, I like you, you like how you use the word hedonistic and, you, and compared to, in contrast to this person who's so disciplined, he's clean, he doesn't drink, he doesn't engage in foolishness. Cause one of his bodyguards says, um, oh, he has a fantastic voice. And the older one, the older bodyguard was like, yeah, if you're into that sort of thing. I'm sorry, Jeff, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say it's interesting that um, in, a, in a movie with uh, you know, people playing uh, these characters, it's actually the Muhammad Ali character that, uh, that, that uh, comes off as almost uh, meek, especially for uh, someone playing because, uh, uh, you know, the the three other uh, the three other men sort of are uh, come off as, as almost stronger because and it also goes to show that uh, this, you know again he was a 22 year uh, Muhammad Ali at this point was a 22 year old kid and uh, thinks that he has the whole world in his uh, in his hand but uh, I think almost uh, seeing these other uh, especially probably seeing Jim Brown you know uh, yeah, at that point one of the most well regarded uh, athletes uh, at the time. Uh, seeing how much he has to go, even though he has the heavyweight title, like uh, he still has ways to go in order to, maybe he thinks that uh, uh, partnering with Malcolm X uh, might, might help that, might help his image. Well, um, going off of what Kenyatta was saying about how you had Malcolm X um, being this militant type of guy. I mean, other characters also have like, I guess you would say like these um, modern dynamics that other people we may know have today, just like Malcolm X was militant, um, you could say that um, Jim Brown was supposed to be like this tough guy type of person. And then um, Sam Cooke was just supposed to be the guy that wants everybody to like him. And then you'd also have like um, Muhammad Ali who, or Cassius Clay in this movie, supposed to be the guy that's just like the pretty boy, the guy who's like still young and still learning these things. So I um, uh, forgot what my point was trying to be, but yeah. Um, yeah, I've lost my train of thought completely. But yeah, um, what I was trying to say is, yeah, just you have these character dynamics that do exist and they still exist in today. 
and you still have these conversations that go on just the same as that conversation that went on in that one room. Yeah, and I mean, even though this thing, 64, I mean, 60 years ago, uh, you know, you could say some of the stuff that um, that you've seen in this film still exists today. And one of the things that bothered me, you know, uh, a lot of people participate in a lot of marches, like peaceful protests, um, like I said, the police brutality, so on and so forth. And then you see the first thing people want to do, well, some people, I'm not saying everyone, but you see people, they started, they start having like a party. It's like, really? <laughs> and they're twerking, you know, you have grown men twerking in front of police and it, it kind of gets buffoonish, you know? Uh, it just shows a lot of lack of discipline, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, uh, you know, you see this in this film where, you know, like like you said, uh, you know, they're, they're more worried about having fun, drinking, partying, you know, uh, having promiscuous sex, so on and so forth, while all this stuff is happening, you know, in terms of the civil rights movement, people are dying, people are, uh, you know, uh, got crosses being burned on lawns, churches being bombed, you know, there's a time and a place for everything, you know, and um, to be in constant, like, okay, yeah, you make your money for entertainment, but that's not life. You know, that's a time to get in a recording studio and record your music. There's a time, you know, have your concert, have a good time. But there's also a time to get serious about what, what the world is around, going on, what's going on in the world around you. And it is sort of, uh, you know, um, Malcolm's message to all of them is that, uh, you know, how can you just be, you know, uh, how can you just be out there entertaining, you know, the, the masses while uh, all, this is, uh, all this is going on in your communities? And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this is probably a very different Malcolm X than uh, probably uh, uh, a lot of people are expecting. Uh, this is, you know, he's, you know, for everyone following along with uh, Denzel Washington's uh, Malcolm X, this is sort of at the towards the end of the, the movie, um, right before he goes to the pilgrimage uh, to Mecca. Uh, so he's <clears throat> he's very he has self doubts now. Uh, was uh, was Islam the, the right uh, faith to choose? Was uh, the right faith at this point? And he wants to sort of. He's, he's he has he just has a lot of uncertainty in right now. He's he has very he has huge concerns about his own safety and the safety of his family. But so he's like <clears throat> so at this point he is trying to, uh, you know, thinking about the future and thinking about well. You know these these three other uh, you know these these three other you know uh, entertainers and uh, and athletes they're probably going to have to take up my mantle and uh, uh, because I don't know uh, about where I'm going to be and of course he'd be uh, killed uh, just in the, within the next year and uh, I, I think that goes that that is part of the, the at least the character here portrayed uh, as with a lot of these historical adaptation you know historical dramatizations it's uh, you know the the screenwriter and the director's idea of all these characters, you know, it's not, you know, sacrosanct, it's not uh, historical text. Uh, it's just what they, it's just their ideas about these characters at this time and how they use them together. And I think that's what, the, that is the, uh, that is the true heart of the, the script rather than just being very, you know, uh, very devoted to uh, uh, the, uh, the actual history. Right, the Malcolm that you see in this picture is similar to the Malcolm that I've heard described by James Baldwin, among other people, um, that the public Malcolm, the one with the camera on, the one who's making a public statement or speaking before an audience, um, was a lot more fiery than the person who was behind the scenes. Uh, uh, I've even had, I've even heard uh, Baldwin describe Malcolm as being shy and a very gentle person, which is the complete opposite of what people think about in terms of Malcolm X. And, uh, very um, quiet is not what people would think or, or, or call him uh, at all because of the public persona of Malcolm X. But again, behind closed doors, he was supposedly a very um, shy, quiet, um, kind of reserved person. And then he, he had 
kind of cultivated this this persona for the purposes of doing what he needed to do, which is to galvanize people. Um, but that, for the most part, was not who he was when the lights, when the cameras were off, and he wasn't, you know, speaking before a crowd. So I think, you know, this is a really uh, the first time I've seen, at least, uh, Malcolm X being portrayed that, in a way that's similar to how he's been described um, when the cameras were not on. Thank you, as always, for giving us a listen. You have reached the end of part one of our One Night in Miami podcast. There was a lot we wanted to cover with this great movie, so listen to more of our discussion in part two by clicking next in your podcasting app. Feel free to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. You can support this podcast and a screenwriters group with a monthly donation by clicking on the support button in anchor.fm. You can find Kenyatta and I hosting the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com. You can join us by RSVPing to a virtual peer-reviewing scripts unit by using the link in the description. We wish you all the best in your writing and other of life's pursuits. Continue on staying strong.